since us are unethical. I speak my mind and it's strictly political. All right, hello and welcome to uh, season one, episode six of Strictly Political for the episode Mr. Willis of Ohio. I'm Matthew Bryan, joined as always by the spectacular Mason Kennedy. How are you doing, Mason? Matt, I'm doing just fine, and as always, happy to be talking about the West Wing. Yeah, fun fun episode this week, although as we'll get into it, probably the least factually uh, accurate episode of, of the series so far, so I think it'll be interesting to, to jump in and see all of that, but do you have a, a two-minute two summary here for us? Well... Matt, I do have a two-minute plot summary for you. Today's summary revolves around three primary plot arcs. Uh, The first, the A plot here, is that the House Appropriations Bill is on the chopping board. It's going through the vote, and the West Wing has to find a way to get it through because there are three swing votes uh, that they have to convince uh, at least one of in order to properly pass this vote. And the main thing that's stopping that is an amendment that would restrict changes to how the census is taken. Uh, So the results uh, of this situation are basically that they're uh, they're trying to change the the census, or at least there there is a potential in the future to try to change the census, and this amendment would uh, restrict any uh, further change to uh, the processes they're in, whether it's a sampling process or, uh, you know, counting every individual person. But all in all, this episode reveals that Many people, including some staff here in the White House, don't know how the census is taken. Uh, the the most uh, apparent example of that is that CJ has to go to Sam for a lesson on how the census uh, is actually done, why it's the way that it is, what's going on with it, and Sam explains to her uh, a lot about the, the process, how it's costly, it's inaccurate, it's a big pain in the neck. But uh, we see that throughout the episode, we work with uh, mostly Toby, Mandy, Sam, CJ, th- these are kind of the forefront of this census and uh, appropriations bill arc. Uh, we see them convince at least one congressman, which is Congressman Willis, husband to the late Congresswoman Willis, uh, who is standing in for his wife until the next election. They managed to convince him that uh, this amendment is not actually the right move right now. And we can talk a little bit more about that process later. But that's really the core of the first arc here, uh, is that the appropriations bill is on the chopping board and they managed to get it passed. The B plot, a little bit more exciting, uh, goes along with uh, Josh taking Charlie out for a drink before the vote goes through. And it turns out that uh, Mallory, and uh, Mallory being Leo's daughter, and Zoe, the president's daughter, are also coming along. They tell Josh that the president told them that this is what they could do. They want to come out to the bar. When they get to the bar, Zoe goes up to get a drink for CJ and, for some reason, leaves her panic button behind. This is the button that calls the Secret Service to her wherever she may be, and she says that it ruins the silhouette of her outfit, which seems like a paltry excuse to leave one of the most important things that you have to carry around at all times behind. But regardless, she leaves it behind at the table and heads up to the the bar where she's quickly surrounded by three men. Charlie's the first one to notice. He goes to her defense, and eventually Sam and Josh join her. They get into a little bit of a scuffle where all three of, but mostly Sam and Josh, uh, the the White House men, try to look really badass in front of Zoe and, you know, think that they could take these three massive guys. Uh, But in the end, Josh presses the panic button. The Secret Service come in, arrest the three men that were uh, uh, attacking Zoe, really, and... 
they are all taken away very quickly. Charlie has a you know a zippy line at the end about how he one of the men probably has drugs on him, so he's going to go away for a long time. So uh, yeah, and then after that, interestingly, Zoe gets yelled at very severely about a hypothetical hostage scenario that the president's convinced would have happened, and Josh is. Uh, only, you know, really, he, he gets a finger wag in his face. That's that's the culmination of this, you know, threat to national security is that Josh has a finger wagged at him and Zoe gets yelled at very, very severely. But in the end, Charlie is invited to the poker game and all is well. The C plot to round things out is that Mallory visits Leo in his office. Mallory, again, is Leo's daughter. And Leo assures her that this separation with him and his wife is nothing to be worried about. It's a very... Uh, impermanent thing, it's going to blow over, as he says. And Mallory convinces him, no, that is not the case. Mom is very serious about this, and it's probably something that you're going to have to get used to. Leo struggles to tell the president about the separation throughout the entire episode, and finally does pretty close to the end. Uh, president Bartlett gets very upset about it, actually, and it's clear that there is some more background to his relationship with Leo and to Jenny, uh, that we haven't necessarily seen yet in the series. He gets very upset about the separation, uh, especially when he finds out that it's been two weeks since it happened and he hasn't heard any of it. So uh, eventually that, you know, that kind of calms down. The president reels it in. He says he's sorry to Leo and, you know, offers any help that he can give uh, in, in this time of need. So those are the three major plot points uh, that I saw in this episode. If I left anything out, please let me know, Matt. No, I think I think you're right that there's there's a, a pretty clear uh, A, B, and C storyline in this episode. Like like most episodes, the A storyline ties into the title of the episode, and then you know we have the the, the B storyline with uh, with with Josh taking taking everybody out to the bar, um, and then yeah, the the C storyline is really the the, the Leo and the President storyline. Uh, but before we we dive into the episode a little bit more, I forgot to give the the episode details at the top, so I'm going to give them now. Um, episode, like I said, entitled Mr. Willis of Ohio, originally aired November 3rd, 1999, and it is um, written by Aaron Sorkin and directed by Christopher Missiano. Um, but yeah, no, I think I think you did, you did, you did a, great, a great job summarizing um, um, that, and so we can dive in, I think we can just dive in right with the A storyline here, um, which is, like you said, that there is... Um, the big uh, appropriations bill for the year 2000 is, is getting passed and it's right on the sort of final steps. And there's a concern that it's not going to pass, not because of anything necessarily directly related to the apportionment, but because as part of the commerce appropriations bill, the Republicans are trying to pass a prohibition on sampling in the census. And again, the sort of story is that that seems like such a, such a minor thing to hold up, you know, all of the government funding, but um, you know, it's an issue that is sort of of top priority, right? Because there is going to be a census in the year 2000. And so this is sort of the last opportunity to, pass laws that are going to edit the census that is, of course, going to affect what the apportionment and what the, you know, taxation liability for these states look like for the next 10 years. And so it, you know, even if it's an issue that is maybe a little bit sort of inside baseball, it's an issue that obviously both, obviously both sides care 
pretty pretty deeply about because it's going to have you know a long-lasting impact on what goes on in terms of the actual results that happen right this seems like a really small issue but i also like that uh the episode plays off a few of the other quote-unquote small issues earlier on we get kind of a gag moment where they're listing off all of the things that are being included in this appropriations bill uh which seem like very small things for them you know uh fixing up houses and and sending money all over the country for menial, you know, I think corn research or, or, or research on how to use wood. Yeah, the uh, use of wood. All things that are included in this bill. <laughs> but obviously that goes a long way to show that this is the this is the budget for the entire country. And clearly there are going to be a few things that are uh, important to some people but could be laughed at by others. Right, and that, you know, the importance of the budget isn't each individual thing, right? But it's that combined they are, you know, hundreds of billions of dollars, right? And that that is something that, you know, ultimately matters a lot, right? Even if there is some comedy to be found in some of the things that, you know, maybe maybe not everybody agrees the government should be spending money on, right? But that, you know, and I mean, I think that they, they do a really good job of, sort of tying that fact together, I think, by having the, like, physical printout of the bill, you know, being, like, these, like, massive, massive books that the, you know, they get, like, one of the, you know, assistants to come in with the, like, cart pushing it because it's, like, the super heavy just to bring, like, you know, six copies of the of the bill. I thought that was, that was quite fun, just a fun way to um, sort of visualize, right, like, what a major thing this is, right? This is the entire appropriations for the entire country for an entire year. And, you know, that I, that I think sort of even, you know, even if you don't understand the census necessarily, it sort of highlights the importance to the characters in universe, right, of the census amendment, because they're willing to say, we're going to veto this entire budget if it includes this one amendment, right? And that that's not enough for the Republicans to back down, right? The Republicans look and they say, well, we're going to risk a veto to pass this amendment because it matters that much, right? Because it's going to have impact for the next 10 years, right? In terms of, you know, what states have, what number of representatives. Exactly. It's very clear that, uh, you know, this is akin to the last episode, uh, a peek into how the sausage is made. And it's a messy, messy process. And that's one of the reasons that, Toby is so surprised at a lot of his interactions with Congressman Willis because, as he says at the end of the episode, Congressman Willis did not come in with an agenda. He didn't come in with a strategy. He came in to listen and learn and hear other people's arguments, and that is so outlandish on the Hill that it it takes Toby quite aback, and he has to talk to Willis about, you know, what do you mean you just wanted to listen to my point, and then you were convinced by my point. It's it's such an outlandish stance to take, but I think that that goes a long way to emphasize how everybody else feels about this bill and how it's it's a weapon to be used at times. Right, absolutely right, that everybody can sort of recognize the, you know, outcome and that they're sort of outcome-oriented, whereas Mr. Willis coming in not as a politician, maybe doesn't, under, you know, doesn't, you know, because I think the idea, right, is that these guys come into these meetings and they know what they're going to say, but also they're smart enough to know what the other side is going to say, right? And that the meetings really are sort of, you know, 
pointless in, in in a lot of extents, right? That they are that it's like if you if you know what your argument is and you know what your opponent's argument is because you have people in your office that their entire job is to you know write opposition position papers, right? Like you meeting with them isn't going to really impact how either one of you feel. But when somebody like Mr. Willis comes in and is, you know, doesn't, hasn't spent, you know, months and months on this issue, looking at it from every side and, you know, hardening his own opinion on it and coming up with counter arguments and, and all of this stuff, right, that it leads to, um, it leads to the situation where he's able to sort of be swayed by a, an argument, right, because he hasn't spent, you know, forever, you know, planning for what that argument was necessarily going to be. Exactly. He is fresh to the table. Luckily, he has some uh, background teaching, I believe, social studies at a high school. So uh, obviously he has school. some, a middle school, he has some background maybe in how the government works. Uh, and he tried his best, as he says later on, he tried his best to learn about what his wife was working on uh, in Congress. But he is uh, kind of this episode's everyman. I mean, he and CJ share that title, I think, throughout the episode. Learning about the census, learning about how the sausage is made, and trying to make the best decision therein. So, uh, yeah, I think that this is a great episode to kind of introduce us to characters that aren't like every other person that we've met so far. Because up until now, the only everyman that we've really had, right, is Josh, maybe Sam, people that are relatively new to this position, but people that aren't new to the responsibilities and the processes that we're seeing. Uh, a lot of the time, they might seem outlandish to us, and so it's nice to have these characters that are ready to admit that they don't know what they're talking about and are ready to learn about the process just like we are. Yeah, no, I think that this is a really good episode. I think that the, the you know Congressman Willis is a very interesting character. Um, before I say too many nice things about it, though, I do want to say that... Um, this is the part of the episode that is sort of the biggest uh, factual inaccuracy of the series so far is by 1999, all vacancies in House representatives were filled by special election. And so there would be no, no circumstance where uh, somebody would come in who had not won a special election. And so, you know, they sort of have to take some, some, some creative, liberty, I think, to, to, to come up with a scenario, but I think you're right that it really does do a good job of being almost an audience stand-in, you know, in this episode, right? And so I think you, you can be forgiven for some some factual inaccuracies um, a little bit here, I think, in this episode. Right, and honestly, just for the sake of meeting Congressman Willis, I'm happy to look past a few inaccuracies. Glad we're talking about him right now. But I love this character. I think he's really, uh, I don't know, he's refreshing in the face of all of the other characters that we've had to work with for the last few weeks. Yeah, no, no, he, he, he definitely, you know, you know he, again, the, the character that he plays of the, you know, small town, you know, high school or middle school teacher is definitely a relatable character in a way that, you know, any of these other people aren't really if you're not like involved in you know high level politics and so i think that that allows him to be 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 you know so something that you um that, that you that you get from from this character and why it's you know makes sense that you would include him even if it doesn't you know even if you have to you know again 
use use some of your your, your uh, creative liberties. So um, ultimately, the argument that uh, that Toby and Mandy are coming in with is that they are going to combat the Republicans' argument that sampling is unconstitutional for the census by basically making the argument that the clause in the Constitution is archaic and therefore, you know, as long as you're sort of accomplishing the goal of that line, you don't need to do word for word because the actual words are are, are archaic. And they do this by reading out the Constitution. Uh, first of all, I do think the scene where Toby's trying to get a copy of his Constitution from all his secretaries is, is quite a funny scene where he's like, you know, can you give me Article 1, Section 2? And Bonnie's like, of what? And he's like, I love like the Constitution. And then, is that in print? And he's like, you know, just like go break into the archives. I don't care. Like give me a copy. And that was quite a fun scene. But yeah, their goal is their goal is to read it, but they specifically leave out the the part about, about about slaves, right? So they say, you know, you must count the whole number of people. And one of the Republicans there goes, see, you said the whole number of people. You know, it's got to be the whole number. And then it's like, well, no, he turns it reveals like, you know, Mr. Willis, like, what, what do we leave out? And he, you know, uses his middle school history um, background to point out that the part they left out was that it's counting the whole number of free people and three fifths of those that are held in slavery. And basically making the point that the only way that you cannot believe that the census part is archaic is if you believe that slavery is, you know, still a good thing and a thing that we should be practicing. And so I thought that it was it was a fun little, you know, bait and switch there, right? Because again, most people don't know the Constitution word for word. And so when they sort of reveal like, no, we were actually lying and we were leaving out part of it, I thought that was a fun reveal in terms of what's going on there. I would agree. I think it was a nice bait and switch, uh, which went a long way to convince Congressman Willis, especially because it kind of brings him in on the joke, right? It allows him to know the rug that they're about to pull out from under the other congressmen before they do. Uh, and so I think that this was a kind of a classic Toby Mandy, you know, manipulation that uh, was effective to the extent that obviously they succeeded. Yes. And I think that also an important uh, clarification to put in here for our good friend, Matt Stewart, that does not watch the show and just listens. Congressman Willis is black. So it was especially powerful to have, you know, a black man who is presumably descended from slaves be in the room right there as they sort of make the comment about slaves, right? I think that Toby says, like, you know, they, they mean you, Mr. Willis, and he says, yes, right? That it's, you know, that the, the argument sort of further is shown to be outdated or archaic, as they say in the episode. You know, and obviously I think that that's, like, the reason that they cast a, a black actor to play Representative Willis, right, is that you actually get the the contrast there but i think that it really ties tie, ties very well together right to show that you know the reason that you want sampling the reason that you you know the issues with a sort of straight up headcount is that there are real you know racial and socioeconomic issues that are associated with that right and that you know the fact that it's a you know, that if you believe sort of the Republican argument that sampling is unconstitutional, well, it's, you know, literally tied in with the idea of, of slavery, right? And so it's like, oh, there it's, you know, I think connecting the racial and socioeconomic inequities of 
slavery or the founding of this country with this potential saying, if you say, like, if you say that sampling is unconstitutional, well, you know, that really connects to this idea of, like, you know, there's a lot of stuff in the Constitution that we're not so, you know, happy of. So maybe that, maybe that Constitution should be changed in some ways or, you know, at least viewed differently than it has been. Episode also goes a long way, like you're saying, to point out how different we are as a country uh, from when those documents were written uh, to now. And obviously that's the exciting part about watching this series is because the same shifts to some extent have happened between when this series was coming out and what's happening right now. One example being the B-plot where we see the president of the daughter go out essentially unrestricted to a bar, you know, near Georgetown. So that's just an aside, but it's clear that a lot of things have changed before the series, and it's clear that a lot of changes have happened since. Yeah, no, it definitely is very much a, you know, moment in time, right, when this this show was made that it represents, and I think that it's... It's fun from, yeah, from both perspectives, right, to look at, you know, where where they were both from a, you know, looking at the past, but also now as we, you know, live in the in, in the future from when the show was built, right, to sort of give a, 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 a look back to see, you know, what else going on. Um, but yeah, we can, you know, bring a little bit up with this in the, as we get to the climax of the the episode, but yeah, you're right. The, the B plot is uh, all about sort of the the security that is going on in the in the White House. It starts out with uh, all the senior staff in the cold open. They're all playing poker in Leo's office, and just as they're sort of finishing up the game, they head into the they head into the Oval Office. You know, they're all sort of going their separate ways. You know. Sam and Josh are going to talk about the commerce report and, you know, people are getting ready to head home. And then the, the Secret Service crash in, right? And they say, hey, somebody's breached the perimeter. We have a, um, we have basically like, like a, you know, to shelter in place until we get this situation sorted out. Um, yeah, and that's, that's the first scene, right? That really sort of is the first example we get in this show of the recognition, right, that like, the security of the president is one of the biggest issues and concerns that, you know, is sort of in the president's day-to-day life, right? Is the security and security issues that relate to that, right? Specifically, obviously the White House is like a very publicly visible place, right? And it's a publicly visible place for protests, but also a publicly visible place for people that, you know, want to potentially harm the president for any number of reasons, right? Whether it's a political reason or it's a, you know, like the person in this episode, right? Who is like, you know, seems to be mentally unwell and wants to harm the president's family, you know? So it's really our first introduction to the sort of security aspect of, of this show, right? Which is going to be something we're going to see, you know, quite a bit more of as we go throughout the series. Right. And thank you so much for reminding me about this in introduction to the B-plot where we have someone attempting attempting to attack Zoe in the White House. One, because it lets us, uh, I don't know, it, it makes the choices that follow a little bit more drastic considering the president is already on edge about the safety of his daughter. But two, uh, like you said, this is an introduction to the security detail that we see in the White House. Uh, and we'll see a few more examples of this as the series goes on. 
But I'm also so excited that we get to meet Ron, who oh. is one of my favorite yes. uh, kind of, you know, uh, tertiary characters in the series. He's such a fun, lovable guy. I love the way that he interacts with all the characters. And so I'm happy to be able to see Ron in this episode, and I, I'm excited to see him continue throughout. But yeah, the, the introduction to the B-plot makes the fact that the uh, you know, the storyline continues at all, all the more crazy to me that uh, the president is already scared for his daughter's safety and then proceeds to allow uh, his daughter to go out to, you know, get drinks with these people. He says later on that he thought they were going to go, you know, go get like milkshakes, essentially. But that seems strange considering he had instructed Josh to take Charlie out for drinks. Like this this is, you know, that was one of the things that didn't necessarily line necessarily line up for me in this episode yeah i mean i think that this the struggle that i think we'll get into in general with the with the b plot in this episode is that the president is struggling between the sort of different aspects of being being a father right that he cares obviously very deeply about the safety the health the well-being of his daughter but also there is a concern that he is struggling with which is she wants to live a, you know, quote unquote, normal life. And obviously that's, you know, pretty difficult when you're living in the White House. But, you know, she wants to live as normal a life as possible. And I think that as a as a good father, which, again, again, I think in general, he is a good father. He wants to, you know, provide that for her. But it becomes difficult, right, when there is a a level of, you know, security risk that, you know, she is not taking as seriously as maybe he hopes that she would, right? And that if you desire to give her a sort of longer leash, but if she's not being responsible, right, that that makes it that much more difficult, which I think is why he kind of blows up on her at the end, right, is that he ultimately gives her a pretty long leash and then she sort of, you know, still, you know, tears the leash off. I don't know, this is a very bad metaphor that I'm using here, but, <laughs> but, but, but I think that there's, you know, some level, right, of that she's not, in his mind, at least, not living up to her end, end of the responsibility, and that, you know, puts her at sort of an immense danger. Um, but before we necessarily jump into that, I, I do have to agree with you. I love I love Special Agent Ron Butterfield. I think he's great. I think that he is, like, the perfect, the perfect character to be, like, the head of security, right? I think he's the, you know, head of this, I think, I think he's the director of the Secret Service, right? But he's, like, the perfect character in that, like, he's, like, you know, you know, very serious and very, um, you know, just, but it's still like fun in a way, right? And sort of pl- plays off all of the other characters quite well. Um, you know, it's a little bit of spoilers for, for season two, but the funniest character in this entire series, and if you haven't seen this, it doesn't sound funny, but it's very funny, is uh, Agent Butterfield, after he gets shot, refusing medical attention, is like, the funniest bit of television I've ever seen. Like he is, he's, he's just, just an incredible, incredible character. And he's, you know, stands out in every, in every uh, episode that he's in. And he, a, a great introduction here where he comes and he says, you know, Hey, I want to let you know, like the security worked exactly the way that it did, you know, um, you know, she would have had to hit, you know, 10 checkpoints before she got to the residence. And I think that that, you know, the way he's able to sort of calmly explain that shows, right, that he's like the perfect guy to be interfacing with the president who obviously is like going to be emotional about security issues that affect him, affect his family, affect, you know, his co-workers who are, you know, 
some of his closest friends, um, you know, and then, and then obviously, um, you know, you know, you know, that, that, that ties into the fact that there is a, you know, security event later, which is set up by, um, the fact that the president wants, um, Josh to take Charlie out to sort of give him a night off, um, because, president believes that Charlie is, is working too hard, right? Because at the end of the first episode, the first, the first night in the episode, right? They're all playing poker and Charlie's in the office still working. And the president comes in and says, Hey, I'm going to bed. Like you're off for the night, Charlie. And Charlie says, okay, but I'm going to like stay here and do some more work. And so the president is concerned maybe that Charlie's working himself a little bit too much and not giving himself some time off. So he says, Josh, you should take Charlie out to dinner or to, to drinks. I think it's a it's, it's a great scene there where the president tries to give him some money and then realizes that he's not carrying a wallet or keys. I thought that was quite a fun scene where Josh goes, well, I, I don't, don't imagine you'd need keys very much, Mr. President. Which again is true, right? You know, he's legally not allowed to drive ever for the rest of his life. Um, so, you know, they definitely don't need to carry around keys at that point, right? And, you know, you're not necessarily paying for lots of things with cash, but I thought that was... Quite, quite a fun scene uh, there with the president, you know, sort of, you know, the first example, I think, of Charlie really being brought into the to the main core group, right, that we've seen him. He's been, you know, obviously he was a main character in the episode he was introduced, but the last two episodes, he's sort of been, you know, more of a more of a side character, a background character. And now you see him sort of being brought into the main fold, I think, and, you know, by the fact that the president is viewing him as, you know, more of a friend and realizing that he needs to, you know, get the night out and stuff. And I think that does a good job of tying Charlie into the main cast, I think. Absolutely. We've seen a great arc for Charlie as he continues to grow as a character. Starting off with the episode, you know, two episodes ago when he was introduced and then being introduced to Zoe last episode and now quickly becoming a, a central figure in this community, it's very clear that this is somebody that is likable, hardworking, committed to his job here at the White House. And you see that not only in the actions that he's taking, like working late even when the president is off to the residence, uh, but also in the way that he is being treated by the people around him. And so I think that this is a great example of character writing by Sorkin and the team, where we get to see the quick rise of this character and this episode cements it with the security situation that we see later on. Right. And I think that, you know, also just to explore some more of those relationships, right? Like the president says, there is sort of the, you know, Josh Charlie relationship exists because, you know, Josh hired him, but we get to see a little bit more, right? Obviously, you know, we get to see more of the, of the Zoe Charlie relationship, but also we get to see the sort of, you know, father-son relationship that Charlie and the president are going to have, right? That Charlie is coming in here as a guy who, you know, you know, you know, never didn't have a father growing up and he's just lost his mother. So he's, you know, even though obviously he's an adult, right? But he's, you know, still a very young adult and is, you know, sort of an orphan in, you know, in that sense. And so the fact that he's, you know, sort of gaining a, gaining a father figure here, in terms of in terms of the president right and sort of also gaining you know a a big brother character here in the in terms of josh and then also on the other side right you know the president is a man who has three daughters and so he sort of is getting an opportunity to you know 
be a little bit of a, of a surrogate father to a son here, right, in terms of his relationship with Charlie. And I think that that is, is highlighted really well here, right, in the fact that the president of all people picks up that Charlie is overworked, right? The president of all people picks up that Charlie needs to, you know, get out and relax more and that that, you know, really sets up the fact that he's, he's not viewed as just like a, a worker for these people, right? That they have a sort of connection with him. Right. Yeah, I think that we see this family tree forming around the White House. And obviously, you don't want to follow the family tree down too far because so many of the characters, you know, might end up dating. But it's very clear that Josh is filling this older brother role and the president is filling, you know, this fatherly role to Charlie. And this is great for Charlie because he doesn't have a lot of people outside of his sister right now to, to make those family ties. And because we've seen, you know, time and time again, a job at the White House take time away from that family, it's great that Charlie is getting some of that support at the workplace, even though that might not be the healthiest thing long term. But still, you know, when he's not spending time with his sister, he does have these people that are truly looking out for him. And I think that this episode is really, you know, securing Charlie's position in this family more even more so than it's securing his position uh in this you know workplace yeah no and i think that like you said right that there's the level of sort of family and connectivity right is highlighted by the fact that you know when they're when they're doing something where they need to stay late but they're not necessarily working right like like when when they're there and they're they're they're, they're watching the vote right that they they're all there they need to be there just in case something goes wrong or whatever but that they are able to take time and, you know, do something like play poker, right? Like they're doing. And I think that, you know, very, very clear symbolism, right? Is Charlie being invited to the poker game the second night, right? Where he was not there. He was not there the first night. Right? He was still in his, at his desk working. But the second night, you know, he gets the invite to come, to come play with them, right? And that sort of, you know, you know, very, very heavy handed. But I think the metaphor works, right? Of like, he is one of the, tight-knit group now and you know that's partly because of what's gone on in this episode but also partly just because you know a, a time thing right of that these people are getting used to this new character um but yeah like, like you said right so 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 josh is gonna take he's gonna take charlie out and then uh on his way back to his office he is um he is hijacked or stopped in his way by 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 Mallory and Zoe, like you said, the Leo's daughter and the president's daughter, and they convince Josh to, to 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 take him with it by sort of pretending that the president told them they should take him. Right? Obviously, it's revealed later the president did did not order Josh to take them. Right? And is sort of surprised that that, that they were there, um, but they they convince Josh to take them and Mallory, you know. Is, is interested uh, by her previous conversation with Sam where he revealed he had slept with, with the call girl. And so she says, hey, Josh, uh, you should bring Sam. And so, you know, you know, then Josh has the great line where he slumps up against the wall and goes, great, you know, drinks with the president's daughter, the first lady's daughter, or the, the president's daughter, the chief of staff's daughter, and Sam Seaborn. What could go wrong? Um, and then ultimately, uh, CJ gets roped into this because Josh goes to to invite Sam and he says, hey, Sam, we're going to get a beer. You want to come? And he says, sure. And then CJ was just sitting there and goes, hey, uh, I like beer also. And 
So, so Josh says, yes, 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 DJ, sure. You're invited also. Um, and so, yeah, they end up, they end up at the bar. Uh, another thing about this, I think that ties into what we discussed a little bit last episode about, you know, you know, what is, what is, is the potentially uh, creepy aspect of, um, you know, Josh uh, and the comment that he made about Zoe in the last episode about her, you know, definitely not going to live a life of celibacy. I think it's funny in this whole episode how everybody just is constantly making jokes about uh, Josh hitting on college girls. And he's constantly, you know, his, his, his excuse is, you know, there's going to be grad students there as if like that's hardly any better, right, for a guy who's, you know, still at least, you know, probably eight to 10 years older than most of the grad students either. But it's, you know, quite funny how, you know, Mrs. Landingham brings it up and uh, Mallory brings it up. I thought it was just kind of a fun, fun joke, especially as it kind of tied into what we were talking a little bit about last episode. I don't know if they're necessarily connected in the minds of the writers, but it was, a you know, a fun little callback there, I think. I agree. It's a nice callback. It still, you know, doesn't take away from the fact that it's pretty creepy, but obviously uh, I think that if they, I'll give them the benefit of the doubt that if it was really an issue and Josh was really, you know, pursuing a lot of college age girls, they wouldn't be making jokes about it. That's, that's the way that I'll choose to interpret it. Yeah. Well, I do, I do think that, you know, Josh like gets offended by it, which I think, hopefully implies that it's like not true right but it is it is it, it is quite fun you know you know ultimately they are they're they're in, in this college bar and they're sitting there drinking and it turns out that um the the waitress comes over gives them their drinks and they did not they did not uh, bring over bring over cj's drink and so um cj is going to go up to the bar to get it and Zoe decides that she's, she wants to go up to get it because she wants to see how the drink is made, apparently. Um, again, this seems like quite a sort of time capsule moment that, you know, a 19-year-old would be in a bar. And also the fact that this 19-year-old would be able to go up to the bar and even carry a drink back, you know, but... Again, I guess, you know, some things are, some things were different back in the nineties, I guess. Um, and yeah, like you said, she, she gets up to the bar and she is pretty instantly starts to be harassed by, by three different guys who, you know, really surround her and it's, you know, pretty predatory right from the jump. And, you know, everybody back at the table is all sort of laughing and joking around except charlie you know has his his head on a swivel a little bit you know he's you know a little paranoid earlier that people are going to think he's stupid because he's not in college and so he's still kind of looking around and he pretty quickly sees what's going on and you know heads heads up to the heads up to the bar to, to to confront the guys and then you know pretty quickly sam's there to follow and then josh comes and josh has the the, the panic button and you know says you know oh, you guys are in for a rough night and they go what are you guys gonna fight us and they're like no and josh presses the panic button in the secret service uh you know break down the doors and ultimately come in with um with their guns raised and they you know detain these guys and you know like you said charlie makes the 
comment that the guy has, it uh, looks like he has some cocaine in his pocket, and so these guys are going to get arrested, and they're going to speak for spending some time in jail. Um, a really great scene for a lot of reasons, right? I think that ultimately, you know, it shows, you know, the closeness of how these people are as a family, and especially how, you know, how quick Charlie is to sort of, you know, I think, I think it's uh, jo- uh, Josh that makes the comment later on in the episode, right, that, you know, Charlie didn't hesitate a moment to put himself between uh, Zoe and the danger, right? That these that they're 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 jumping up, they're you know willing to sort of look out for each other in a way that you know shows the closeness that they have. I think absolutely, and not only that, but it's another great episode to see Sam and Josh try their hardest to look really really cool. Yeah, and it doesn't really work out for them. That's one of my favorite. Uh, side parts of this scene. Oh yeah, for sure. Especially afterwards when they're like talking about which guys they're gonna fight, and Charlie has to seven to be like, no, like you guys could not fight any of those guys. Like you, <laughs> you, you would have lost any combination there, right? You know, um, no, and, and there definitely is this aspect, right, that these guys are cool relative to the fact that they, you know, live in a world full of nerds, right? And I say this is somebody that you know works in this field, right? That there's you know, politics is full of nerds, and so, you know, Josh and Sam are, are, are the cool guys in that regard, but they're still not going to, you know, be winning any bar fights against, you know, these frat boys in this in this Georgetown bar. Exactly. They get shut down pretty quickly, and if it weren't for the fact that Josh was holding, essentially, you know, a very important, powerful button, uh, you know, they might have gotten their asses whooped walking outside of this bar. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Yeah, no, but I do think there's another interesting thing that you brought up about sort of the lack of security that we get in this episode. And I think that that is another thing that sort of firmly puts this episode in the 90s, right? That this is like, you know, the biggest, you know, red flag of like, this is pre-9-11, right? The fact that, you know, the president's daughter can be in a bar with no security on the inside, right? The only security is outside and it's fully reliant on her pressing the panic button. And because again, she's a, you know, 19 year old child that she doesn't, you know, take the sort of threats seriously enough. Like you said, she takes the panic button off, not for any reason other than she thinks that it, you know, makes her, makes her outfit look worse, right? That you have the panic button in the pocket. And so, you know, she ends up in a situation that is, you know, really a potential issue. And that's largely because, you know, the security really is fairly low, partly because she's not necessarily taking her security as seriously as you would anticipate somebody needing to for it to really be effective security. Exactly. This is the true testament i mean this in the basketball scene that we saw an episode or two ago uh is just like it, it epitomizes how different the word security is with with regards to the white house where we see the president walking around you know unprotected on the street in front of the white house we see the president's daughter walking around unprotected in the, uh, you know, in, in a bar, in a college bar. And the fact that 
Josh felt comfortable taking her out to a bar in the first place, that the senior staff weren't worried about having her sitting at a table and sending her up to the bar. These are all things that would be unheard of today. I can't imagine, you know, Malia Obama going out to a college bar and not having three layers of security around her just because of who she is. Yeah, no, no. Again, I read, um, and I'll, I'll link to this in the show notes if I can find it again, but I read a really interesting piece in the New York Times specifically talking about Joe Biden's granddaughter, Natalie, right? Who's, again, a, a step a step even further removed from the president, right? It's, 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 his, it's the president's granddaughter, right? And just sort of like, how difficult her life is because the fact that, you know, she has all this security and she runs into people all the time. Right. And so it's like a very different experience, you know, just, you know, from what I got reading that article, than like what you're seeing here with Zoe. Right. And I think that, you know, shows, I think, first of all, the fact that, you know, security is thought of differently. And I think also, right. The idea that, you know, political polarization is differently. Right. The fact that these people don't, necessarily know who who the who the president's daughter is right whereas you know you know you know like the, the article was saying specifically that like a lot of like crazy right-wing people like know who natalie biden is and target her because of who she is right and that that you know is something that again is is, is not or i guess that's, that's something that seems very disconnected from the premise of the first half of this episode, right? That the president's daughter can go out to a bar in DC with basically no security and be, you know, that, that be seen as fine, right? Obviously it doesn't end up fine, right? Because she runs into, you know, people that are trying to harass her, but even the, the guys that are trying to harass her, it's just because they're, you know, douchey misogynistic frat boys that want to harass the, you know, pretty girl at the bar, right? They're not harassing her for any, political reason right and that that is you know i don't know it's, it's, it's an interesting twist on the scene for sure right that you know it's it's not actually a sort of political threat that is the boogeyman this episode right but it's you know it definitely could be right and that you know in theory you think a political threat is going to be more well organized and more of a actual threat as opposed to just you know guys trying to you know pick up women and not take no for an answer, right? Like, they're sort of small potatoes compared to a potential, you know, terrorist threat that could target the target her, the, the first daughter, right? And you, you see that as well in the speech the president gives, right? That it's like the worst case scenario is much more of an actual, you know, concern because it's going to be more well-organized and more, you know, specifically targeted to one individual. Right. What we see in this episode are two examples of disjointed and altogether disorganized attempts to attack the president or the president's daughter. And obviously the concern that the president expounds upon later is due to the fact that any reasonably organized group that wanted to do something in this situation probably could have. The only disguise that the president's daughter was wearing was a baseball cap. And the fact that she was wearing that, didn't even stop one of the frat boys from eventually recognizing her. Obviously, that was only because she was seen in context with Josh, and apparently this frat guy, much like the frat, uh, the sorority women that we've seen earlier in the series, uh, were apparently able to recognize Josh just walking around. 
still, you know, further promoting the idea that Josh Lyman is actually a celebrity around Washington, D.C. But suffice to say, they were still able to recognize who she was and the baseball cap that she was wearing did very little to prevent that. So it's clear that the president's concerns are are merited, even if the uh, even if, in my opinion, the delegation of his, you know, uh, frustrations were misguided. Yeah, no, but I, I think it is just, you know, when you end up in, in a scenario, right, where you you think that you're doing the best thing as a as a father. And then it turns out, actually, you're probably doing something that's, you know, not the best thing, right, because of the outcome. You know, he gets he gets he gets very emotional. I mean, he's very emotional sort of throughout this entire episode. Right. Which I think ties into the fact that, you know, you're seeing the consequences of, you know, his decision to run for and obviously, you know, eventually win the presidency and how it's affecting his family in a way that, you know, he probably hasn't really grappled with. Right. I think that that ties in. You know, we could we could jump a, jump a little bit, you know, ahead, and we could jump back and forth between the B and the C plot because I think that they're kind of connected here in terms of the president's emotions. Is that he sees how working in the White House has negatively affected Leo's personal life, right? That Leo is at a point where he is separated from his wife and you know getting a divorce and you know realizing the sort of strain that this has put on Leo's family. It's like, well, he's the only person who's in, in more is, is the president. Right. And so now I think they also recognizing, right. Now that there's a strain being put on, on his family, right. That, you know, his daughter is the target of a, you know, even if it's a, you know, yeah, a horribly planned, horribly misguided attempt, you know, she's the victim or the, your target of an assassination attempt by this by this woman in, in in the cold open, and you know she's you know out in public and be being harassed again, even if it's really more of a you know run of the mill gendered harassment versus specifically targeted towards her. You know it's made worse by the fact that you know she is somebody who is potentially noticeable, right? And for you know these potential you know rapists, it's maybe even you know them noticing it's the president's daughter maybe makes her more of someone they're you know willing to go after right and so you know it's the president i think grappling with the way that his decision to run for president is affecting his family and yeah i think you're right that it he sort of misguides that anger by by you know making up this hypothetical that ends with him with him yelling at zoe um but yeah the, the hypothetical that, that he makes is that, you know, if she's out at like a, a bar or, or a club that, you know, she, she could be, she could be kidnapped because, you know, you know, you, you know, if you're, if you're at a party, right, that there's a lot of people there that you don't necessarily know everybody. And, you know, all it takes is sort of a little bit of organization, right, to have somebody take out the agents and somebody to grab you and that, you know, because it's a crowded party, right, it'll be an hour or two hours before the sort of proper security response can be be, be up to date and it's you know obviously a, a a you know fairly realistic example but you know he he doesn't use it in a way to sort of explain to her he used it in a way to sort of you know emotionally you know hurt her right to, by, by by explaining you know this is a bad thing that is you know likely to happen to you if you you know don't don't sort of shape up and you know it's 
again, like I said, it's not the not the most you know proper way to do that, but I think it's sort of a little bit under understandable given you know all of the emotions the president is probably feeling in this episode. Right, and I think that all of this is riding the undercurrent of a theme that we've been talking about for multiple episodes here, where the president is right that. He could be turned into a weapon against the country that he's supposed to be leading simply by the fact that his daughter was, you know, taken hostage by an organization that meant to do the country harm. And so a lot of the yelling that he's doing is understandable when you think about the fact that this is a president who has gotten loopy on back pain pills, has, uh, you know, wanted to bomb people without the idea of a, you know, reasonable response. Like, there are all these things that come into your mind when you start thinking about what this president would be do, what would be willing to do if his daughter was taken, when we've already seen what would happen when one of the people, one of his staff that he met once was taken away from him, right? So there is clearly some concern to be had with this scenario. Right, right. You know, he's he's definitely a guy who has, you know, very strong emotions, which is, I think, you know, part of what makes him a character that you, you know, think is, is a good president, right? That he, you know, thinks things out, you know, and cares very deeply about these issues. But again, as we've seen, even even through, through six episodes, right, he's a guy who has, you know, emotions that are and can be very, very overpowering sometimes, right, because he loves so deeply and he you know, care so deeply. And so, you know, when he's sort of faced with the opportunity of like, oh, the choices you've made in your life could negatively impact your family. And then because of that, because of how you respond to that could negatively impact you and negatively impact the country and negatively impact all sorts of things, right? That it's like, you know, it's almost sort of understandable when he, you know, you know, gets extra emotional there. Um, but then, yeah, like we've, we've already hinted at it a little bit, right? But the, the, the main C plot of this episode is, um, the fact that Leo has sort of finally decided that it's time to express to, 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 to these people that he is separated from his wife, that his, you know, big plan to, uh, you know, do the anniversary makeup failed and you know he is he is not currently living with his wife and um it starts actually out in, in the first scene where leo leo tells everybody he's going home the president tells him to um to to, to, to kiss his wife for him and he says okay i will and you know obviously you know he's not going he's not going back to where his wife is and so he decides that you know hey i, I should really you know tell the president right he's one of my one of my oldest friends and and, and and i should tell him but he gets you know he 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 gets he gets cut off the first time that he gives it that he tries and then the president has a pretty negative reaction the first time right that he says like you need to fix this you know it's you know you know you can't blame me for making you work these extra hours like you need to put in work in your relationship but then ultimately it ends with the president you know recognizing that not much you can really do about it, right? It's a decision that's made between these two people and he needs to be there to support his friend. Um, and that's sort of, you know, where that storyline ends. Uh, 
you know, what are your thoughts overall on this, uh, this uh, sort of C storyline here? Yeah, I think that this shows a lot of the mentality that men and specifically men with these high demand jobs have around their relationships where, you know, uh, President Bartlett has this really intense reaction to the relationship falling apart. He has these lines like, you know, you should be spending more time with her. He starts kind of uh, soapboxing to Leo. He says, you're the man. You need to fix this. A lot of things are said very quickly. And then you look at the fact that we have yet to meet the president's wife. Obviously, it's kind of suggested that they spend time together when she's not traveling. But it's clear that the two of them are spending uh, minimal amounts of time together as well. And so it's really interesting to see how he reacts to this when they're probably in very similar boats when it comes to the strain that a job like this can put on a relationship. No, and I also think... Oh, sorry. You can feel more. Go. And I also just think that it um, goes a long way to show the relationship that these two have and... Uh, the history that the two of them have together where they have put so much work in uh, to creating this, you know, this uh, administration. And that it, yeah, just just that they're in this together and they're in very similar boats. No, 100%, right? I think that there's a certain level of why the president reacts so viscerally is that it's almost like he's he's projecting himself onto the Leo situation, right? That, you know... You know, it's hinted at, like you said, that the president and the first lady are not, you know, necessarily on, you know, having, you know, in perfect marital bliss, right? You know, I mean, I mean, in the speech in the last episode, right, he he gets up there and he says, um, you know, my wife's in Pakistan, why I've got, you know, no earthly idea why she's there, right? It's like, you know, there's definitely some level of, of strife there, right? And I think that seeing, seeing the fact that you're... You know, you're one of your closest friends who is in a very similar position to you as having these sort of marital issues to the extent that it leads to a a separation and a, you know, likely divorce. Like, I think the president sees himself a little too much in there, right? And that's why you see the like, well, you got to be able to fix it because like this can't be unfixable, right? And that's, I think, partly because he doesn't want his own relationship to be viewed as unfixable, right? That he wants his relationship to be seen as one that, that, that can be fixed. Um, but I think also what we see in the, in the, in the, what we see in the makeup scene later is the fact that these guys are, you know, very close friends and, you know, ultimately nothing's going to come in the way of that for very long. Right. And that that's why, that's why Leo is the perfect, chief of staff, right? Because he's able to sort of be, be the, be the president's, you know, guy that they can kind of talk, talk, talk seriously to each other and they can, um, you know, interact in, in, and they can sort of interact in, in, in such a way that I think really allows them to sort of be candid with each other. And I think that's why they, you know, can't really stay mad at each other for very long because they have such a history together. They have such a interconnected life together that they are sort of almost the same, you know, person in a, in a lot of ways, right? Even if there obviously is some, some, some differences they have. Absolutely. The, 
general advice goes that you should never go into business with a friend or family, anything like that. The idea that you would go into, you know, a presidential campaign or any government position with a friend seems, you know, an extreme version of the same, uh, the same wisdom. And so they have clearly selected, each of these people have clearly selected someone that they trust to the ends of the earth whether it's, you know, President Bartlett trusting Lee or the other way around, these two people have to assume that the other person means, uh, you know, is coming forward with their best intentions or else they could have never gotten to the White House and they would never last uh, through an entire four-year run as the president. So uh, I, I think that this is a great way of showing that connection and showing that not only are these two people connected, but President Bartlett cares a lot about Jenny. That's one of his first concerns. And it's clear that Leo probably has the same feelings toward the president's wife, where they are, you know, in in some respects, a family. And I think that this president, or, and I think that this episode goes a long way to showing how those connections function. Yes, and I think that another thing that they did a good job of sort of showing this earlier in the episode is the closeness that Mallory and Zoe have, right? Even though they are, you know, not necessarily particularly close in age, right? You know, Mallory is a, you know is is you know is a teacher so she's at least you know 22 23 24 and zoe is you know like we said she's 19 but they're still close which again shows the closeness of of these families right they are almost sort of one family right that the president and and leo have this you know you know brotherly relationship that you know extends to their families right that you know zoe and mallory almost have you know like a like a like a relationship that you might have with your with your cousin, right? Who might be, you know, five, six, seven, eight years older than you, right? But because, you know, you're the closest in age when you go to a family reunion, right? You sort of have this closest that you might might not with just a random person who's, you know, you know, that that different of an age. And so I think that that, you know, was a, a sort of a, another proof point in this episode, right? Of the closeness that Leo and the president have that their, their their kids are, you know, such such good friends despite again not being necessarily very close in age or it seems necessarily very close in terms of, you know, interests or career paths they want to do in life. Absolutely, I see these two as another example of the f- kind of found family that is produced out of a career in politics where it's clear that Zoe and Mallory grew up together and that Leo and the president have been together for so long on the campaign trail, uh, in the offices that the president held before running for president. You know, all of these things uh, have kind of fostered a connection between these two families. And I think that the president looks at Leo and his wife as, you know, a more than anything, like a brother and, a, a, you know, a sister-in-law. And so that's probably part of the reason that it hits him so hard, because these families are, you know, irre- irrevocably entwined. Yeah, no, I, I, absolutely. There is there is definitely a level of them being, you know, all sort of one family. And again, I think that ties in also to, you know, what we see with, you know, the relationship that, you know, you know the relationship that Josh has as with Leo, right, as sort of this, you know, you know, father figure, you know, as, as we've learned, right, that, you know, you know, you know, Josh's father is, is dead, 
but that his father was good friends with Leo. And so Leo is sort of, you know, being that father figure to Josh and the president is being this father figure towards Charlie. And, you know, that there is, you know, what you see is that, you know, this core group of people really are, you know, a lot closer than your average coworkers are, right? And that's part of why they, you know, work so well together, right? And that's how they, you know, won this this primary, presidential primary as underdogs, right? Which we'll get into, you know, really in, in, in season two, you know, we'll sort of explore a little more of that, right? But why why they work so well together is because they all get to, you know, work together so, so well. Absolutely. I think it's easy to understand why people work together so well when they have to spend almost every waking moment together. An example from this episode being when Josh and Sam leave the poker table and Sam thinks that he's going to go home and get, what, like four hours of sleep. But the reality is that Josh, to a, you know, similar to CJ, but maybe to a lesser extent, needs Sam to explain the commerce bill to him. And so instead of going home, Sam actually goes to Josh's office and they continue working through the night. Uh, just another example of how long, you know, these people are expected to work together on the day-to-day, but that's magnified by the fact that these people will know each other for years and years and years and be working 24-7 with one another, regardless of their history. Uh, example being that Josh and Mandy work together, and they do so relatively well, even though they have a history and are exes, they still understand that this is just another part of the job. And that, in fact, you know, the fact that they're exes is, if anything, it's not a detriment. It might even be beneficial because they know exactly how to work with one another and they know when they have to step away. So it's just clear that the whole White House is an interconnected web. And I think Family Tree is a great way of putting it. Yes, again, as long as we don't, you know, think too much about the, incestuous nature of it um, you know. <laughs> um but no I, I, I absolutely i think that that's really a theme that we'll explore quite a bit i think this was the first good good episode that really spends a lot of time uh tying into that um one more one more uh sort of you know f plot or whatever you know not not at all important but i think it's just a, a couple of quite quite fun scenes um you know, like all scenes with Josh and Donna are, is uh, Josh and Donna talking about about the budget surplus. Um, so in the in the budget for the year two thousand, they're projected to get, um, I think it's a forty two billion dollar surplus. And um, the Republican idea is what they what the Republicans call tax relief, which is basically giving that money back to people. And the Democrats have plans. They're not, they're not really fully explained in this episode, but some sort of, you know, further investment of that money, right? Whether that's just purely investing the money or saying, hey, we're going to expand our plans for infrastructure. It's not really explained. And so Donna um, is attempting to, to understand why the, um, why the Democrats are opposed to, to the Republicans' tax, tax relief plan. Um, and, uh, I, th- I think it's great because uh, Josh's explanation that he keeps giving her is, well, we're Democrats. Like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't want to give you back your money. We don't trust you. We're Democrats. Which I think is, you know, you know, quite, quite fun, especially, you know, as sort of a way to, 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 to be a little bit dismissive. But I think it's quite fun. And then we get the um, we get the, 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 the reverse at the back where 
uh, at the end of the episode where, where Donna goes out to buy Sam and Josh uh, sandwiches and uh, Josh gives her gives her a 20 and then she does not give him the change because she says, you know, I don't trust you with your own money. I'm going to I'm going to invest the rest of this twenty dollars for you. So just, you know, not really consequential to the plot, but it's always fun when we get some nice uh, Josh and Donna banter. I completely agree. I also want to point out that it would be lovely if today I could go out and buy, you know, two or three nice, you know, sub sandwiches and have it cost, what, $12? Yeah. No, a little it's... bit of a insight into the inflation that we've seen since this episode came I was out. Gonna say, the sandwiches look really good. And I was like, I want to get one of those sandwiches, but it would cost me like, you know, 18 bucks for one, you know, which is unfortunate. I, said, yeah, I still might go get one after this because those sandwiches look really good. <laughs> But yeah, no, the, the fact that he's like, oh yeah, it was, it was three sandwiches for eleven ninety five or whatever it was. Yeah, wouldn't that be nice? Um, all right. Well, I think that that sort of brings us brings us to the end of the episode. Do you have any uh, any uh, final thoughts on this episode here? Yeah, I think that uh, this is another example. Of, this episode as a whole is another example of Sorkin presenting politics as at least he believes they should be. Uh, and Or at least on the trajectory of getting there, I think that Congressman Willis is, aside from the factual inaccuracies that his position represents, also a example of kind of wishful thinking when it comes to politics. And as much as I like the idea, I think that there are going to be times where you know people are going to take comfort in this when the reality is that there aren't a lot of Congressman Willis's out in the world. And so, I, again, I think that that represents how dated some of this episode can be and just, uh, you know, how different things are than maybe what we want them to be. Yeah, no, absolutely right. I think in, in, in general, right, I think the, the criticism of, of the West Wing, especially from, you know, people that are are further to the left politically than me, is that it, you know, really has quite a bit of idealism. And I think that that's, you know, accurate, you know, in sort of the aggregate. But I think, you know, episodes like this, I think, do a good job. But, you know, ultimately, yeah, the message that is being portrayed, you know, maybe maybe not 100%, you know, accurate to, you know, how the real world works. Um, but it is it is now time for, for, for who won the episode. Um, I almost forgot about that, but I didn't. Um, so uh, I think that, you know, this is an, a very interesting episode. I think that there are sort of two contenders in my mind. So first I'll go with, with my runner-up, which is which is Toby. I think that Toby comes into this episode, you know, really with a singular goal of getting this amendment out of the bill. And he's able to, you know, use his... His, his, his sort of, you know, rhetoric, persuasive ability to actually, you know, affect change in that regard in a way that is sort of unexpected, right? You know, that it's sort of catches himself off guard the way that he's able to um, persuade, persuade Mr. Willis, you know, and he has like sort of the, you know, proud dad moment at the end, right, where he watches Mr. Willis make, you know, what is probably his only vote, um, you know, that they, they all start the poker game and he says, just a minute, I want to watch this, right? And he watches as they say, you know, Mr. Walker, Mr. Walker, you know, Mr. Whatever, right? And they get to, to Mr. Willis. So I think Toby's a strong contender. I think that, you know, if 
if anyone gives it to him, I don't I get that. But I think that the winner to me has to be Charlie. I think that, like I said, this episode really solidifies him as a main part of this group, right? A part of the family, a part of the core group. You know, he builds his relationships with Josh, his relationship with the president, his relationship with Zoe. You know, he's the first person at the bar who recognizes that something's going up. He's, you know, like Josh says, he doesn't hesitate to step in and sort of, you know, be the hero that's needed at that at that moment. Um, yeah, so I think, I think for all of those reasons, I think that Charlie finally sort of a full member of the cast. And so he gets he gets my vote here. Uh, who do you have? Yeah, check the record to confirm, but I'm pretty sure that this is the first time that we uh, completely agree. Not that I've disagreed with you that extensively in the past, but uh, Toby was my runner-up and Charlie is my number one. I think he absolutely wins the episode. He wins the trust of his employer. He wins the trust of his friends. And he wins the trust of Zoe, which is going to, I think, uh, go a long way as they continue uh, to grow their friendship. And so I I really love this episode for Charlie. Like I mentioned earlier, I think it cements his position in the White House. And that's exactly why I think he wins the episode, too. Yeah, so you are correct. I did just pull up our, our Who Won the Episode spreadsheet. This is the first time that we uh, we have we've both made the same pick. And again, I see that shows, you know, despite the fact that, like I said, it is a really strong episode from, from Toby, but it just shows how strong of an episode it is for Charlie and really his coming out party to, to connect him really fully as a main character going forward that is going to be important basically in every episode from here on out, right? That again, he wasn't in episode one, he wasn't in episode two. He comes in in episode three and is, you know, a main character in that episode, but then in four and five, he's really sort of a little bit of a step back. And now he takes a full step forward and he's not going to step back again, really for the rest of the, of the series. And that's, you know, again, probably my, probably one of my favorite, you know, characters of the main characters and just such a fun guy. So I'm glad that he's, you know, really coming into his own here, I think. Exactly. My thoughts exactly, uh, and I'm glad that we can agree on that. All right, and we will be back uh, next week for Season 1, Episode 7, The State Dinner, where we're going to, um, you know, uh, meet the meet the President of Indonesia and, you know, all the sort of hijinks that come with sort of, I think, really the first um, foray on this on the show into the, the foreign policy aspect of of the president, which is, you know, at least half the job, right? So I think it's fun that we'll finally get a real, real deep dive into that. And that'll be uh, next week. See you then.